So and we'll, we'll jump right into this, this overview of Exodus. So you, you've probably heard this line uh, many times in your life. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Um, so many, we, we've seen that it's, it's in, or something like it is in several places in the Bible, including a bunch of them in, in Leviticus. Um, so you might not realize that that's where it comes from, because it's, it's in the New Testament, Peter quotes it, um, and uh, again, it, it's, it's really common, but in Leviticus, Leviticus 19, it says this, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And like I, I mentioned, this isn't the only place in Leviticus where it says this, or something that's very, very, very closely related to it. And so... It's clear, and almost everybody agrees, almost all commentators would agree, that holiness is the central theme of Leviticus. That, that God is holy, the people are to be holy, and holiness is the theme. So you couldn't go wrong with using this verse as an overview of the whole book, or at least an illustration of what the book is about. But when you're doing an overview like we, are, we do tonight, we also want to get a feel for what is the overall message of Leviticus. Not just the theme, uh, but what is, what is the, why is it here? Why is this book here? So if you just open your Bibles to Leviticus 1, uh, at the very beginning of Leviticus, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, so right in the middle of the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the uh, Old Testament. And the first thing to know about Leviticus as we do this overview is that Levit Leviticus should be considered a continuation of Exodus. And really, you should think of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers as, as one unit, um, as a unified story. So this is the verse that you're looking at. I have it here in New American Standard because I just think it's, it's way better than the ESV translation. Um, way closer, it's still not, you know, doesn't follow the Hebrew, especially the word order exactly, but it's, it's closer to the meaning of uh, the Hebrew, I would say, than, than the ESV is. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, so there's actually a lot in this verse, um, especially... Uh, as it relates to how, what the message of Exodus is, or what the message of Leviticus is, and actually of the the whole uh, three block three book block there, but the name that you have in your Bibles and we have in all of our Bibles is Leviticus, which means that it is 
it is about the Levites, right? So the people that who are God's priests. That comes from the Septuagint, um, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible actually has a different name for this book. Uh, it is Vayikra, which means, and he called. And that's how it really starts. And he called to Moses, and the Lord said to him, or spoke to him, and he called. Um, so the, the Leviticus starts it out, then the Lord called, which is good because it helps you to understand that this is a continuation. You could understand, and he called here, or then he called there is, as, and the next thing that happened was, he called Moses. It's a continuation of what is in, in Exodus. And so if you've been in that Exodus study, you'll remember that the last part of Exodus, um, about a year's worth, half of the year's worth, <laughs> is about the tabernacle. And um, in here it says that the Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle. So the tabernacle at the end of Exodus had been completed. It was set up. It was in operation. Um, it was fully furnished. And so why did the Lord call to Moses from the tent of meeting, from the tabernacle? And we actually have to go back to Exodus to see why that is. So if you go back to Exodus and look at verse 40 or chapter 40 verses 34 and 35 you'll see this. This is right after um, the tent is set up, the tabernacle set up, furnished, ready to go. Then the then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. Because the clouds settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So Moses can't go in the tabernacle. And so God takes action. God calls to Moses from the tabernacle. The presence of the Lord is dwelling in the Holy of Holies. And Moses can't go in. The presence of God was there, and the, the Holy of Holies was meant to be a place where God would meet with Moses um, from above the atonement cover or the mercy seat. But you're not supposed to be able to, the high priest or Moses wasn't supposed to be able to go in the tabernacle, I mean, in the, in the Holy of Holies, whenever he wanted to meet with God. But here, he can't even get in. Um, so something must have happened. What has happened? Well, that's what Exodus is about. And more than that, 
If we include part of the second verse in in the beginning of Exodus, we'll see that the Lord commands Moses to tell the people something. We don't know what it is yet if you're just looking that far out, but we'll just put that on the left side of the screen because one of the ways you can understand what the meaning of a book is, or at least clue to it, is how does it begin and how does it end? So here we go. On this side of the page, we have um, the first, the beginning of Leviticus, and at the the other, we'll put the end on the other side. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. So the Lord calls to Moses and says, "Tell the people of Israel this," and it ends with, "And he told them this. He told them what God had commanded." So that's one clue to the message of the book. You can kind of get a feel for what Exodus is about. God's commanding Moses to do something, and he he does it. So covering a book like this in in one session isn't unique. It's really not very common, but it isn't unique. I was familiar with uh, Mark Dever had done this um, in his church, Capitol Hill Baptist, Um, And after we were talking about this at our staff meeting, about doing this um, at our staff meeting, uh, Pastor Dan sent me something. Um, He sent me something from the Bible Project. Has anybody ever heard of the Bible Project? No. Okay. (laughs) Dan has. I know Dan has. Okay. So one of the things that the Bible Project does is make short videos of overviews of books like Leviticus. And so Dan sent me uh, a link to this, and um, they do a lot of other things too, the Bible Project, but that, that's one of the things that they, they do. So Dan said that he, you know, normally when he starts a book study, he will watch this video of the overview of the book because it it's, lets you know what this book is about. So they did the same thing as we did here. They compared the first verse in Leviticus, but instead of comparing it with the last verse of Leviticus, they compared it with the first verse of Numbers. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers are one unit. So here is the first verse of Numbers. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness, in the tent of meeting. They sound pretty similar, don't they, right? Pretty much the same. But there's one difference that the Bible project that Dan turned me on to picked up on. And it was this. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting in Leviticus. Uh, And then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting in Numbers. So what happened? Well, Leviticus happened. Uh, That's what happened. So the Bible Project people, they understood that Leviticus was about that. It was about starting here and ending here. And, and that's how they get 
what they think is the main theme or the main, not the main theme, but the main message of, of, of Leviticus, what Leviticus is about. And I continued on and, and looked at the other things that they had, like the, the way they structured it, and I was really impressed um, by what they did. So um, I came home. Um, no, I'd been home a while. So yesterday afternoon, I was, you know, just excited about this video thing. And I, I told Brenda that, um, you know, explained to her what I, this, this video, how this, this project can give you an overview of a book like Leviticus in eight minutes. And started talking about it a little bit, and then she said, well, why don't you play it? <laughs> and then she said, well, I know it's outside of your box. <laughs> well, she's right. It's a, it is outside of my box. It doesn't fit. Uh, and then she went on being in education and a teacher that explaining why it would be a good idea to change up the way that you teach once in a while. Be- because then so many people wouldn't fall asleep. <laughs> but the idea made me really, really, really uncomfortable of playing a video. Um, but then I thought... Well, I used to tell firefighters, comfort is the enemy. (laughs) And so I'm going to be uncomfortable as we play this video. (laughs) So here you go. The book of Leviticus. It's the third book of the Bible, and it's set right after the exodus of the Israelites from their slavery, when God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and invited Israel into a covenant relationship. Now, they had quickly rebelled and broke that covenant, and God had wanted for his glorious presence to come and live right in the midst of Israel in the form of this tabernacle. But Israel's sin has damaged the relationship. So, at the end of the previous book, Exodus, Moses, as Israel's representative, could not even enter God's presence in the tent. The book of Leviticus opens by reminding us of this fundamental problem. It says, the Lord called to Moses from the tent. So the question is, how can Israel, in their sin and selfishness, be reconciled to this holy God? That's what this book is all about, how God is graciously providing a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. Now, let's pause for a second and explore this really important idea that God is holy. It's fundamental to understanding this book. The word holy means simply to be set apart or unique. And in the Bible, God is set apart from all other things because of his unique role as the creator of all, as the author of life itself. And so if God is holy, then the space around God is also holy. It's full of his goodness and his life and purity and justice. So if Israel, who is unjust and sinful, wants to live in God's holy presence, they too need to become holy. Their sin has to be dealt with. Thus, the book of Leviticus. Now, the book has a really amazing symmetrical design. It explores the three main ways that God helps Israel to live in his presence. The outer sections are descriptions of the rituals Israel was to practice in God's holy presence. The next inner sections focus on the role of Israel's priests as mediators between God and Israel. And inside of that are two matching sections that focus on Israel's purity. And then right here at the center of the book, there's a key ritual, the Day of Atonement, that brings the whole book 
together. The book concludes with a short section where Moses calls on Israel to be faithful to this covenant. Let's dive into the book. The first section explores the five main types of ritual sacrifices that Israel was to perform. Two of these were ways that an Israelite could say thank you to God by offering back to God these symbolic tokens of what God has first given them. Three other sacrifices were different ways of saying sorry to God. So here an Israelite would offer up the lifeblood of an animal while confessing that their sin has created more evil and death in God's good world. But instead of destroying this person, God, of course, wants to forgive them. And so this animal symbolically dies in their place and atones, which means it covers for their sin. And so through these rituals, the Israelites were constantly being reminded of God's grace, but also of his justice and of the seriousness of their evil and its consequences. The second set of rituals lays out the seven annual feasts of Israel, and each of these retold a different part of the story about how God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And by celebrating these feasts regularly, Israel would remember who they were and who God was to them. Now, the sections about Israel's priests, you have Aaron and his sons first ordained to enter into God's presence on behalf of Israel. And then in this matching section, we find the qualifications for being a priest. The priests were called to the highest level of moral integrity and ritual holiness because they represented the people before God, but then also represented God to the people. Now, we find out why the priest's holiness matters so much back here in this first section. Right after the family of Aaron was ordained, two of his sons waltz right into God's presence and flagrantly violate the rules. And so they are consumed by God's holiness on the spot. It's a haunting reminder of the paradox of living in God's holy presence. Because it's pure goodness, but it becomes dangerous to those who rebel and insult God's holiness. And so it's important that Israel's priests become holy, and also that all of the people of Israel become holy, which is what the next intersections are all about. Chapters 11 through 15 are about the ritual purity required of all the Israelites, and chapters 18 through 20 are about the moral purity of the people. Here's what's underneath all of this purity and impurity language. Because God is holy and he's set apart, The Israelites need to be in a state of holiness themselves when they enter into his presence. This was called being clean or pure. God's presence was off limits to anybody who was not in a holy state. And this was called being unclean or impure. Now, an Israelite could become impure in just a few ways. By contact with reproductive body fluids, by having a skin disease, by touching mold or fungus, or by touching a dead body. Now, for the Israelites, all of these were associated with mortality, with the loss of life, which gets us to the core symbol of all these ideas. You become impure when you're contaminated by touching death, so to speak. And death is the opposite of God's holiness because God's essence is life. Now, this is really key. Simply being impure was not sinful or wrong. Touching these kinds of things was a normal part of everyday life. And impurity was a temporary state. It just lasted a week or two, and then it's over. What was wrong or sinful was to waltz into God's presence carrying these symbols of death and impurity on my body. Don't do that. Now, the last way of becoming impure was by eating certain animals. And the kosher food laws are found right here in this section. Now, there have been lots of theories about why certain animals were considered impure and off-limits to promote 
hygiene or to avoid cultural taboos. The text just isn't explicit. But the basic point of all of these chapters is really clear. Altogether, these work as an elaborate set of cultural symbols that reminds Israel that God's holiness was to affect all areas of their lives. This corresponding section over here is about Israel's moral purity. The Israelites were called to live differently than the Canaanites. They were to care for the poor instead of overlooking them. They were to have a high level of sexual integrity, and they were to promote justice throughout their entire land. Now here at the center of the book, we find a long description of one of Israel's annual feasts, the Day of Atonement. Odds are that not every Israelite's sin and rebellion would be covered through the individual sacrifices. And so once a year, the high priest would take two goats. One of these would become a purification offering and atone for the sins of the people. And the other was called the scapegoat. The priest would confess the sins of Israel and symbolically place them on this goat, and then it would be cast out into the wilderness. Again, this is a very powerful image of God's desire to remove sin and its consequences from his people so that God can live with them in peace. The book concludes with Moses calling Israel to be faithful to all of the terms of the covenant. And he describes the blessings of peace and abundance that will result if Israel obeys all of these laws. He also warns them that if they're unfaithful and dishonor God's holiness, it will result in disaster and ultimately exile from the land promised to Abraham. Now, if you want to see how Leviticus fits into the big storyline, it's helpful to look at the first sentence of the next book of the Bible, numbers. It begins, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent. So we can see that Moses is now able to enter God's presence on behalf of Israel. The book of Leviticus, it worked. So despite Israel's failure, God has provided a way for their sin to be covered so that God can live with sinful people in peace. And that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. That is a pretty good summary of that. So the the Bible project there, besides their understanding they have of Leviticus um, from those two verses, was was pretty impressive. And or as they had on their graphic, um, here's what they had. They summarized it with what they got from those verses. God graciously provides a way for people to live in his presence or... Um, a little bit more fully when they stated it, God is graciously providing a way for sinful, corrupt people to live in his holy presence. So let's just build on that tonight. We don't have lots of time to continue this overview, but we'll, let's build on that with this theme of holiness. That isn't compatible, incompatible with this. What we, what we saw earlier. To be holy because the Lord your God is holy. That is how God provide, graciously provides a way for sinful and corrupt people to live in his holy presence. You shall be holy for I am, I the Lord your God am holy. So what... What they put out there on the structure from the book that you saw on the two sides, um, normally that's called a chiasm. Um, and it's usually displayed differently from that in, in um, theological things. And, and you probably have seen 
one of us put something like that up on a board. But, but normally, um, so that had seven parts. So normally a seven-part chiasm would look like this. Now you have the two corresponding A's and B's and C's and D's. And so the order of the book goes A, B, C, D, C, B, A. Like that. And that's what this does. And often when you have uh, what this kind of a structure, the focal point of the book or the, or the text or, or the chapter um, will be D, the one that is by itself. Often it looks like that. So again, I'm going to put those same terms up they had, but here's what you have. The Day of Atonement would be the focal point. So you can have a chiasm with three things or five things or two things or, well, not two, but four you can have. Um, sometimes they don't have a middle thing. But when you see something like that, pay attention, right? So, so that's what I really liked about it. This is the way they just they kind of laid it out there. So notice that the, the ritual is, is the beginning and the end of the main part of the book. They, they did note that there's a, there's a closing section. And so on both sides, right on both sides of the Day of Atonement are purity things. Um, so uh, before and after. So that's, that's their layout of the book that I think is just so right on track. Um, and so the focal point of that, though, is the Day of Atonement. So which they, they gave a quick overview on that, but as we build through, build on what they have there, um, let's, let's just do this. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And right out of this verse, we're going to make three, two points, real quick points, um, and then a third point, which will be to get to the focal point of the book. So we could spend, easily spend several Sunday nights on any one of these points, but we're just summarizing, trying to get an overview of Leviticus that will help us in our reading so and our own study. So you can see that, that that statement right there, I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now you could break that into two parts. One would be I am the Lord your God, and the other one is I am holy. Um, and so they knew they had been around, so the Lord is your God. Speaking to Israel here, God's people, I am the Lord your God. Um, so the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who rescued them from slavery, the guy who had shown them all his great power and his might, and also this God. Yahweh, who describes himself this way, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So he's the covenant, the God that makes the covenant with them at Mount Sinai, who desires to live among them, have his presence dwell among them, and he is holy, which 
that little short video explained the problem, right? Because holy means to be set apart, to be different, unique. Um, it has more than that, though. In, in God's case, there's, there's nothing any, anywhere close to him. There's no one close to him. Self-existent, eternal, way different by himself, self-determinate. He just, God determines everything. So he is the creator. Yes, like they said, the author of life, like they said. He's also perfect morally, perfect in power, in love, purity, as we sang in, in the hymn. So impure things can't come into contact with God. And so there's, that's the problem, is that holiness and unholiness do not mix. So there are degrees in, of holiness, um, in, and it's evident in the Torah, uh, in, the, in the Pentateuch. There are degrees of holiness. God here is at the center. He's the most holy. So this is with, with, with persons. God is a person. Um, and then outside of that is the priests. The priests are more holy. They have, they have to be more holy than, than Israel, uh, the people of Israel. And then there's Israel outside of them that are a declared, set-apart people. Um, just by God tells them they're a holy people. And he will make them a kingdom of priests, indicating that something different is going to happen to them. So there are also, and we've seen this in Exodus, there are degrees of holiness. So John Frame um, uh, made this chart. It's in his book called Doctrine of the Christian Life, explaining holiness as related to place. Where God is is holy, just like the Bible Project mentioned. Where he is is the holiest place. And so in the tabernacle, it's the holy of holies. And then outside of that, the rest of the tabernacle is holy, different level of purity. And the next is the, is the tabernacle complex, and it's complex. The Holy Land, so Israel's land, and then, the, then all of creation. Degrees of holiness. But where God is, you, you heard, him, heard him say here, and this is a striking line to me. Now, God's good. But he's dangerous um, for those who would rebel against him. So when I was when I was when I when I heard that line, it's striking to me. That's a striking line, and uh, I don't know how many of you are Chronicles of Narnia people. I've never read one, but I have watched some of the movies. I have kids, you know, so. So, but one, one line stands out in, in those Chronicle of Narnia's things that I've watched more than any, and it's in The Lion, the Witch, and the road, um, Wardrobe when Mr. Beaver um, says to Susan, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? 
Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's good, but not safe. He's good, but he's dangerous. His holiness is dangerous. I have no idea if C.S. Lewis had anything like this in mind when he wrote it. Uh, when he wrote Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. And that was an abbreviated dialogue there. It's much longer than that. But, but that's what I remember from the Chronicles of Narnia. You shall be holy. So to live in God's presence, as they said, we have to be holy. And, and that is what Exodus, or what Leviticus is about. Holiness. About how we become holy and can live in God's presence, like the rituals, the ritual things, the sacrifices, the feasts are ways that we become holy. The priests who represent us before God um, and have a higher level of holiness. And then the purity laws, the things from everything that they mentioned from bodily fluids to, to what you can eat to sexuality. All of those things are included and they tell us about holiness. But but the thing that we really need to think about is the center point. So even if you could keep all those laws um, to the best of your knowledge, even if you did all of those things and you come, I, I followed all of those things. I did all the feasts. Every time I sinned, I did a sacrifice. I did all of those things you would not be holy enough to enter into God's presence. So why is that? Well, sins are about what we do with our hands and what our heart is. And so we don't have pure hearts. There are sins that we commit that other people don't know about, that we don't want them to find out about. And and the really tough one is, um, and and Deborah mentions this one in, in his overview, There are sins you don't know about that you commit. So without unintentional sins and things that you did that you don't even know you sinned. So, So what do you do about those? There isn't anybody righteous, not even one. And so the third point here is this middle part, this focal point of Leviticus. The Day of Atonement. So they went over, he went over just, just the real basics of what happens with the two goats on, on the Day of Atonement. I'll just talk about that real briefly. But atonement, as, as they mentioned, means covering its base form. It's why we, when we were doing Exodus, we said the atonement cover. Or because cover is, is the idea here. Um, but it came to mean more than that, like a ransom, a price that you pay to, to appease. So Joseph does it to Esau, or uh, Jacob does it to Esau. He, he, he makes a covering for him by sending a gift. So he's making atonement, so paying a debt to gain favor or paying a price to gain Favor. So atonement means all of those things. So as they mentioned, a, a t- the Day of Atonement happens once a year. Uh, and it is the day that the high priest, only the high priest, nobody else, um, goes into the Holy of Holies. And that's the only time he does. 
So he goes into the Holy of Holies. What they didn't tell you is about the long ritual that, that the pre, high priest has to do before that. So he has to not only make atonement by, those goat, by the goat sacrifice uh, for the people of Israel, before he can even do that, there are things he has to do. Like he has to make atonement for himself with a separate offering for himself and his family. A separate offering before he can even do that. And he has to um, make atonement for, and this seems strange when you read it in Leviticus, he has to make atonement for the altar. He has to make atonement for the tent of meeting itself. So why would you do that? Puts, it's, it's because of this. Leviticus tells us. It's because the sins of the people, the uncleanness, the trans cleanness, the transgressions, and the sins of the people that I dwell in the midst of, or that the tent is in the meeting, in the middle of. So a year's worth of sin has been building up. Uh, And so on the Day of Atonement, it is taken care of. So let's just um, talk about um, the goats a little bit. So as they mentioned, the goat, there were two goats. Um, both had to be clean goat. I mean, not clean. I want to say, say the word blameless because that's how you would say it in if you were talking about a person. Blameless, without blemish, spotless, perfect. Both goats were that way. And so both goats come before Aaron. He casts lots for them. One of those goats carries the sin of all the people. The other goat is killed. So the goat that is not carrying the sin of the people is killed. It's without spot. It's without blemish. And it is killed. Right? It is called even the Lord's goat. It belongs to the Lord. The other one is driven out into the wilderness. So, Exodus 16.30 says this, For on this day shall atonement be made for you, to cleanse you, to make us clean, to make the Israelites clean. That's how that happens on the day of atonement. The, the blood of the goats makes them clean. Actually, God makes them clean by means of this. So we've probably heard so that, that you are not to eat the blood because life is in the blood. You've heard that many times. That's, that's in that's Leviticus 7.14. But there's another verse in Leviticus 17 that deals with life being in the blood that we should probably pay more attention to. This one is simple to say, so we pay attention to that one. But it, here's the one. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. So not only is the life in the blood... 
But God's given it to us. It's his gift to us to make atonement for our souls or our lives. That's what the blood is for. That's what the blood of animals is for. And we all know that the blood of bulls and goats doesn't actually forgive sins. That it is something else. So those goats, one carrying the sin away, taking away sin. The other one, the other blameless one, both blameless. The other blameless one laying down his life on behalf of us as our representative. There probably isn't a better example in Scripture of something like this, of, of, of something that Jesus says to the Jewish leaders. You search the scriptures because it, you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So Leviticus 17, the Day of Atonement, is bearing witness about what Jesus does. about what Jesus does for us once for all, not every year. So Leviticus, with all its laws and all its things and all its rituals, we might look to as an example of how Scripture speaks about Jesus and about us and our forgiveness and our life and what Christ has Our life is in his blood. So the next verse after this, um, Jesus says, and you refuse to listen. So, So that you might have, or you refuse to come to me, so that you might have life. So that's the essential message of Leviticus. Really short over time, but we had an eight-minute video. What can I say? (laughs) Let's let's um, close in prayer, and then we will have our our final hymn. Lord, we um, thank you for uh, the scriptures that you give us. We thank you that you have shown us through things like Leviticus what. Christ has done for us, how he has atoned for our sins, how he has paid for our sins, how he has carried our sins away, Uh, even though he's blameless and perfect, without any fault, um, you saw fit that this is the way that you would show your love toward us. Christ died for us. Thank you for that gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.